since the cupbearer had been restored to favor and had completely forgotten about Joseph. Chapter 40, verse 23. To put it bluntly, the cupbearer went on with his life, happy in the service of the king, and no longer a prisoner in Pharaoh's dungeon. He didn't give Joseph a second thought. That's human nature for you. I'm good. I'm safe. I'm happy again. I'm free. What else is there? (laughs) That's our society too, by the way. Out of sight, out of mind. We know this to be true because when Pharaoh summoned the Egyptian seers and magicians, verse 8, they didn't see anything in Pharaoh's dream that they could understand. Verse 8, the latter part, says no one could interpret them for him. Ding-a-ling-a-ling, well, that rang a bell in the cupbearer's memory. Oh, wow, he willingly confessed his shortcomings, verse 9. Namely, he had promised Joseph to speak on his behalf, get him out of prison. But that was two full years ago. Well, Joseph was either dead or still in prison waiting for a release that never came. He quickly told Pharaoh of the young Hebrew, verse 12, who had interpreted both his dreams and the baker's dream, both of which came true to the letter. Verse 13, I was restored to my position, he says, and the other man, well, you hanged him. I'm sure all of this began to ring true with Pharaoh as his mind took him back two years to that birthday celebration, chapter 40, verse 20. When the king gave a feast for all of his officials and the fate of the cupbearer and the fate of the baker was determined and that determination proved to be the very outcome Joseph had predicted from their dreams. Now, now, Pharaoh himself has had two dreams and no one in the roster of his astrologers, his mediums, his seers, no one could tell him what the dreams meant. These were two strange dreams. But as Joseph would later say, verse 25, the dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same They are a stereo version, in other words, of the same message. Okay, what were they? Dream number one. Out of the Nile River, verse 2, came up seven cows, sleek, fat, grazing among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, I'm reading scripture, came up out of the Nile, and they ate up the seven fat cows. Verse 4. 
Additional details are given in Pharaoh's reiteration of the dream to Joseph in verse 19, where the king said to Joseph, I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came out first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. In other words, Pharaoh says, I saw this dream and ugly cows had this big feast. But there was no benefit for these emaciated cows simply because they had one good meal. They looked just as ugly and gaunt as before. That's dream number one. Dream number two, on a stalk of grain, verse 5, there were growing seven heads of grain, healthy and good. But, verse 6 says, after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Now, the similarities in the two dreams convinced Joseph that these two dreams really had but one singular meaning. The number seven is the timeline that applies to each dream. Seven years of good and plenty, that would be the fat cows, the full heads of grain, followed by seven years of famine, verse 27, that would be the gaunt, emaciated cows or the worthless heads of grain, that were scorched by the east wind. Okay, but what does all of this mean? Joseph explains, verse 28, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. When Pharaoh fetched Joseph from the dungeon, his statement to him was this, I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 15. To which Joseph answered, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And now that the dreams have been described and interpreted, Joseph affirms, verse 20, shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. We learned last week that those who are spokesmen for God, be they prophet or preacher or priest or king, must be careful not to rob God of his glory by accepting the praise of men as though they themselves were the originators of the insight that they possess. They're not. They're not the originators. They're just vessels. You might say it is a very humbling thing to realize that God does not need spokespersons to convey his message of truth. You say, well, what do you mean? In the time of Balaam the prophet, he was hired by Balak the king of Moab, to curse Israel. 
for a fee. <laughs> it's going to pay him. So that Israel would not be able to come up against the Moabites and win. Balak didn't want that to happen. So we read, Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the prince, uh, princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword to his hand, she turned off the road into a field. And Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and he was very angry, and he beat her with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You have made a fool of me. If I had had a sword with me in my hand, I would kill you right now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? Wow, a donkey that can talk and a donkey can actually reason. Think of this. No, he said. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. And the angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. The donkey saw me. The donkey turned away from me these three times. And if she had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. Ooh. But I would have spared her. Oh. Numbers 22. New Testament commentary is given by the Apostle Peter, and here's what he says. Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness, was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Second Peter 2. 
15 and 16. Balaam was a prophet, but he was a prophet for hire. And that's what Peter's saying. The only reason he acted as a prophet was because people paid him. And so when they paid him, he would always give a prophecy that favored them. Of course, you know, I paid to hear a good word from you. I expect to hear a good word from you. An even more stunning example is given by Christ himself. When he entered Jerusalem riding on the coal of a donkey and the people received him with gladness saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, you need to rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Luke 19, verse 38 and following. Living and animate creatures like a donkey or inanimate, lifeless objects like a stone are subjects of God to speak for Him whenever He so wills. It's a privilege to speak for God whenever He calls us to do so. But we must remember the glory of For the truth spoken always belongs to God. Always. So, bottom line. What was God saying to Pharaoh through his dreams? Verse 29. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. How abundant? Well... So abundant that as little as one-fifth, one-fifth of the grain produced will necessitate storage cities capable to house tons of grain, food enough to feed the known world of that day, verse 57. And secondly, the seven years of abundance would be followed by seven years of famine, so devastating, verse 30 and 31, that all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. Okay, how extensive will the famine be? Verse 54. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was food. Verse 56. The famine had spread over the whole country. So, this was not simply a provincial famine localized to the Nile Valley of Egypt, 
But as Jacob in Palestine would say to his sons in chapter 42, verse 2, he said to them, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Brethren, that tells us how severe this famine was. There's no food in Palestine. You're going to have to make a trip. Egypt has what we do not. And you have to go down there and buy some grain or we're going to die. I want you to think about what a heartache it would be in the United States if Hammond hit our plain states. No more food. And you walk into Kroger's or Myers or wherever you do your grocery shopping and the shelves are all bare. So Joseph's counsel to Pharaoh was extremely wise and it was needed to abate the effect of the famine. He said three things. Here they are. Verse 33. Hire a discerning and wise man to be put in charge of the land of Egypt. Verse 33. That's the first thing. Now we might think that hey, Pharaoh himself should head up this program. But he had had enough on his plate as the ruling head of state responsible for the peace and safety of the people. Good leadership does not mean that the person in office has to do all the work himself. Moses was counseled wisely by his father-in-law Jethro, who observed the next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood round him from morning till evening. Wow. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people... Stand around you from morning till evening. And Moses answered him, Well, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. This is before the codification of the law. So everybody, not like us, But everybody back then did not have a Bible. They didn't have a copy of the first five books of the Bible. Which Moses wrote. So they came and he knows what he wrote. By inspiration of the Spirit. And he would tell them. Oh you have this dispute. This is going on. Here's what you do. Here's what you don't do. And he became the arbitrary. Arbiter excuse me, of 
the law of God that he knew and was written in the commandments of the scriptures. So Jethro says to him, listen now to me, and I'll give you some advice, and may God be with you. So he's not being arrogant. He's, he's saying, I'm just worried about you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Take men who are of good advice to become the people's representatives. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, Appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decipher themselves. And that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. Exodus 18, verse 13 and 5. Good advice from Jethro. Wow. Moses, you're working yourself to death. You're not going to last. Yeah, I understand. But you you, you can appoint good men that can handle the lesser severe cases. And you can take on the biggies. Well, in our study, likewise, Pharaoh needed to appoint a governor. So that's what we see in verse 34. Let favor appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt, that is, during the abundant years. The years of plenty must not be squandered. No, verse 35, they should collect all the food of these good years and store up the grain. How will Egypt and its neighbors survive if no one is taking advantage of the good years of harvest in anticipation that bad days are just around the corner? Notice, no one will be deprived, just saving one-fifth of the produce. That's all that's necessary. That will be sufficient. Which means that the farmers still have four-fifths of the grain to do with as they wish. They can sell it, they can trade with it, they can eat it among their own families, whatever. Just give up one-fifth. Third solution. Under orders of Pharaoh, the grain was to be, verse 35, kept in the cities for food held in reserve for the country to be used in the seven years of famine. Verse 36. In other words, to avoid riots born of panic amidst the people, which might lead to gangs trying to force their way into the granaries to steal grain. Storage facilities were to be confined beyond city walls, in the city where it was safe. Verse 48. This is smart. Don't we know, haven't we seen, 
panic in our own country when people get desperate. They break store windows. They go in and rob the food right off the shelves. This is America. So, observe, this is a three-pronged plan. Number one, appoint a governor over the entire project. Number two, appoint commissioners to actually do the work of collecting one-fifth of the harvest. Number three, store the grain in specially built granaries within the city confines. (coughs) (coughs) Pharaoh's response. Verse 38, he asked his officials, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to To your orders, only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Genesis 41, verse 38 and following. Finally, brethren, Joseph is out of prison. And not only so, but elevated to vice regent over all of Egypt which we'll talk about next week. You see what God can do? We think we need to help God along at times. You know, hey God, I'm still here. You seem to have forgotten me. We need to trust by faith. So what are some of the lessons? Well, number one, it's gracious of God to tell us more than one time his plan or his will for our lives. say, what are you talking about? Well, Pharaoh's two dreams were redundant. Think about it. They were superfluous, not necessary. That's the way we think. But being the sinners that we are, do we not often forget things that are vital to our lives? We have... In our account this morning, the fact that the cupbearer forgot all about Joseph. And that forgetfulness cost Joseph another two years in prison. Now, it's true that God had not forgotten Joseph. But humanly speaking, it appeared that what the cupbearer acknowledged as a shortcoming, verse 9, had cost Joseph dearly. There are people, I've read of some, who are said to possess what they call a photographic memory. Which means that their brain operates like a digital camera. They're able to read a passage in a book or see a picture on a map or even hear what another person says to them. And their brain goes, click! It records the event for further recall. 
So there's no such thing as studying for an exam because they can remember everything the teacher taught and every assigned reading they have read. Their minds record time and place and content and directives and outcomes and all this from one brief exposure to the information. What a wonderful gift from God. But that's not me, and I'm guessing it's not you. You and I, you and I have to study to learn. We have to read and reread a textbook, in this case the Bible. We have to listen time and again to gospel preaching to be reminded of God's will for us. And in all this, we are very, very normal. We are in the category of the majority. People with photographic memories are exceptions to the rule. And you don't find many of them. Listen to what the apostles said to their readers in the letters sent as follow-ups to their personal visits. Paul writes, I have written to you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them. Again. Because of the grace God gave me. Romans 15, verse 15. Or again. For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Or again. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. And then we have a command given to Titus, who was being counseled by Paul. And here's what he said. Paul told Titus, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Titus 3, verse 1. Peter, in writing his second letter to his people, said, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you now have. And for that matter, what about all the apostles themselves? Paul, Peter, Andrew, Bartholomew, and the rest. Jesus put it this way, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. John 14, verse 26. It's likely that nothing I say to you from this pulpit will be new. Very likely. Not my task to try to be novel or to be innovative in what I teach or how I say it. We're to preach, pray, sing the old, old story of Jesus and his love, as the hymn writer writes. 
and to remind you of what you have learned from the God whose word, like himself, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And redundancy is one of the ways we learn and lock in the truth. And by the way, that's how we can tell the difference between a false teacher and a true teacher. Someone comes along and starts talking about things that are contrary to what we've been taught and learned from the scriptures, and we should put up flags. Uh uh. Mm-mm. Sirens should start going off. This doesn't sound quite right. Secondly, only God can reveal the truth of his revelations to human heart. Pharaoh knew that his two dreams meant something. But what they meant was a mystery to him. Therefore, he called for the best scientific minds of his realm to see if they could unravel the mystery for him. Verse 8 says, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians, that is the astrologers, And wise men of Egypt, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. He's trying. He's trying to figure this out. And even when Pharaoh learned of Joseph and summoned him to court to interpret his dreams, Joseph acknowledged, verse 16, I cannot do it. What? I cannot do it. That is, there is no innate ability in Joseph to unravel the mysteries of God's mind. So, I mean, is it hopeless to even try to understand what God has revealed? Either by way of dreams or visions, as in Old Testament times, or by the written word of the Bible in our times? Is it not hopeless? No, it is not hopeless because Joseph was right to say to Pharaoh, God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Verse 16. He's saying, I can't do it, but God can and God will. What about our day? Can we know the mystery of the gospel and the words that we read from the Bible? Yes, we can read the English translations, but can we know the spiritual meaning of those words? The teachings of the text. Paul told the Corinthian believers that when he showed up on their shores, he did not use wise and persuasive words as taught, but rather spoken by the Spirit's power. So that your faith would not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. First Corinthians 2, verse 4 and 5. We didn't come in as, as advocates of human philosophy. That was, that was not our criteria. He went on to explain, however, that what he taught was God's... Secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden 
and that God destined for our glory before time began, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 and following. Well, how then did Paul, and for that matter, all the members of the church at Corinth, understand what the intellectuals of their society did not? Verse 10. God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. He goes on. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is of God. That, here's the purpose, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, not in words taught <clears throat> that way, but in words taught by the Spirit expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned or understood, and the implication is they don't have the Spirit. So if they don't have the Spirit, they can't understand spiritual truths that are given to them. First Corinthians 2, verse 6 and following. Their brethren is our dilemma in trying to preach the gospel to people. We're trying to deal with spiritual truths, tell them what the gospel is, who Jesus Christ is, why he has come, what he has done at Calvary, and so forth. And they're going, uh, duh. Their eyes go gray and blank. And they can't conceive what you're talking about. Simply put, God must explain God to us. God must define himself to us. God must open our eyes to the truth if we are to see what he reveals and hear what he speaks. Joseph said essentially the same thing to Pharaoh. I cannot interpret these divine dreams that you had, but God can. I can't do it, but God can. It's his way of saying, Pharaoh, uh, don't put your faith in me. You call all your countrymen, your magicians, your sorcerers, your seers, your prophets, and they couldn't tell you anything. I can't do any better, but God can. Thirdly, we learn that famine and pestilence and crop failure is not the indiscriminate outcome of bad weather, but of God. Our world of scientific meteorologists use all kinds of measurements to try to give an accurate forecast of the weather. Air currents, humidity, heat from the sun, the moon's gravitational pull on the seas, 
low pressure, high pressure. They analyze these factors, and they give a forecast of what they think the weather will be like tomorrow, today, a few days from now. But there's no way to predict major catastrophes like floods and famines and hurricanes and the like with any kind of unquestionable accuracy. Oh, they use computer models to predict what they think will happen, but there are no uh, there are so many variables that a hurricane might just as well track northwest as northeast, so they postulate several models, any of which may or may not be realized. So how can God say to Pharaoh, <clears throat> Egypt will experience seven years of bumper crops, followed by seven years of drought and famine, so severe that no one will even remember the good years. How can he, how can he say that? Well, he's able to say that because our weather is not the result of the mix of high barometric pressure and low or cloud cover or sunny skies and so on, but rather of God's personal involvement in all the factors meteorologists count on to make their prognostications. Did you know that? Jesus said of God the Father, He causes His Son, S-U-N, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and on the righteous. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, verse 45. Elihu, Job's friend, explained about God. He unleashes his lightning beneath the whole heavens and sends it on the end to the ends of the earth. After that comes the sound of his roar. He thunders with his majestic voice. When his voice resounds, he holds nothing back. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. He does great things beyond our understanding. He says to the snow, fall on the earth. He says to the rain, shower, be mighty downpour, so that all men has been that has made may know his work. He stops every man from his labor. The animal takes cover. They remain in their dens. The tempest comes out of its chamber. The cold from the driving winds. The breath of God produces ice. And the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters them with lightning through them. At his discretion they swirl around over the face of the whole earth. To do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. That's Job 37, verse 3 and 5. God does it all. Now may I say that this is the explanation for the great flood in Noah's day. Let me read it for you. On that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth 
the floodgates of heaven were opened and rain fell on the earth forty days, forty nights. The waters rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The water rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than twenty feet. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Now these were waters of judgment. Jesus refers to them and says as it was in the days of Noah so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Then Jesus says this, that is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man himself. Matthew 24, verse 37 and following. You see, folks, men attribute to nature kind of a, a, a mind of its own. I'm sure you've seen that on TV, especially at the meteorologist report every, every night on the news. But nature does what God dictates. Plentiful rain, luscious crops, drought conditions, scorched crops that bring famine. God is in them both. That men might revere him and tremble at his power. Who controls the weather? Our God does. And if he does that with great power and authority, then it is sobering to hear the scriptures say it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. This living God that controls our universe and our planet and the meteorological systems, water, rain, snow, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of that God. Unless... You know that God's Son, Jesus Christ. Who has promised there is therefore no wrath that will come on God's people. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the wrath at Calvary. That's why you need him as your savior. If you don't know him, you can cry out and call. And Jesus himself put it this way. 
You have not because you don't ask. Ask that you may receive. People are too proud to ask. They have too high an opinion of themselves and think they're okay right where they're at. I mean, after all, they didn't kill anybody. That's the way they reason. But the soul that sins, and that's everybody, is destined to die and after that to face judgment. I want a Savior that's going to stand with, stand with me right there. <clears throat> In the day of judgment... And plead my case as the lawyer that he is, as the advocate that he is, and be able to hold up before the throne of God his shed blood on behalf of his people. The devil cannot have that man, I can hear Jesus say, because I died for that man, and I paid his sins. I paid for his debt. The devil cannot argue that. He has no case. Father, you need to dismiss the charges. You need a Savior. If you don't know Jesus, that's the only Savior you're going to get. That's God's own Son. Bleeding for his people, dying for his people. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll bless the truths to our hearts. Thank you and praise you for what you have done for us. We pray, Lord, that you will, in fact, give us great comfort and joy in knowing we have a Savior who's paid it all given his very life the wages of sin is death he paid the wages the soul of sin shall die Christ died all that the law required to satisfy justice was accomplished by our Lord and Savior so I have a stand in I have a substitute And everyone here can have that same substitute if they will come to Christ. Grant them repentance and faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to take a... Um, we'll sing one hymn, 351, just to get us started and take a 10-minute break and regather for the Lord's table. And then there's no evening service tonight, but 351 for now. And that's in... Oh, you changed it. Because Jared left. Oh, okay. We lost, we lost our penis. We lost our penis, so we can't sing that one. However, we will sing that one because we can sing that without a penis. <laughs> 202. 202 in the brown.
Take a 10 minute break and regather when you hear a note on the piano, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>